is investment something that's always been on your mind, but you don't quite know how to get started on that journey? We are here to set you on the right course. Welcome to My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We are all about getting out of the rat race through creating positive passive income through real estate investing. Here you'll hear from regular people just like you and the professionals who support us towards greater wealth. Learn before you earn, move from analysis to action, and find the right path to attaining the success that you've always dreamed of for yourself. Now, here's your host, Athena. Welcome to Cashflow Academy's podcast, where we interview successful investors and the businesses that support them towards greater cash flow. Today, I have with me Bridget Burns, an attorney who's going to talk a little bit about two different trusts that I think very few people have heard of, and then also asset protection and other topics she's an expert in. So welcome, Bridget. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yay. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about Bridget before we get started. And she tells us about herself. Attorney Bridget Burns is an attorney at Day & Associates, a law firm in Solana Beach, California. Ms. Burns' practice focuses on all aspects of trust and estate law, including complex estate planning, asset protection, charitable planning, oh, that's nice, probate, and trust administration. Ms. Burns also has extensive experience in business formation and corporate liability prevention. Wow. So prior to joining Day & Associates, Ms. Burns practiced at a boutique law firm handling all aspects of business law, including complex litigation. Ms. Burns handled multiple trials at both state and federal levels. Oh, so you're a litigator. Wow. As well as arbitration and mediation. So Ms. Burns attended New York University School of Law, where in addition to her studies, she served as articles editor for the Environmental Law Journal. Oh, well, so California is perfect for you then. (laughs) Prior to law school. Oh, there was a life before law school. Okay. Prior to law school, Ms. Burns attended University of San Diego on academic scholarship and received a degree in poli-sci or political science with a minor in English. Wow. Wowza, wowza. Okay. Well, welcome, Bridget. This is cool. (laughs) Okay. So why don't we start about, just tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you from a small family, large family, what your parents did, kind of your background so we know a little bit about you. Sure. So I'm actually from Phoenix, Arizona. Now, as you mentioned, I'm out here in San Diego, so I haven't moved that far. But I come from a family of lawyers. I had a grandfather who's a criminal lawyer. Both my parents are lawyers. My sister's a lawyer. My brother-in-law's a lawyer. So wow. it just a bit. <laughs> um, So it was kind of a natural progression for me to go into law as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, I used to be a litigator. Uh, I refer to myself now as a recovering litigator. Luckily, I don't do any of that anymore. Nice. Um, I was doing primarily business litigation. So I was working with small businesses, typically in contract disputes. And often we would get to know our clients and they would ask us to help with things like their estate plans. And also often after they had been involved in a lawsuit, they wanted to know how do I prevent this in the future? So started getting into asset protection type planning. Mm. And then I got the opportunity to join Kevin Day at his firm Day & Associates. He's a well-known asset protection attorney. He was one of the first people to get into that area of law back in the 90s when that became a viable option for Americans. So I've learned a lot from him. Like you mentioned, we focus 100% on trusts and estates and asset protection, that area of law. And we work with tons of real estate investors, just from single family homeowners that just rent out one to 
condo building owners to syndicators who have investments in tons of different projects. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So I think I read in, on your bio online that while in school, you were assisting a professor who was doing some kind of research or something around environmental law. Was that right? Yeah. In law school, I went to New York University and one of the subjects that they are known for is environmental law. So I worked with a professor there on his book on nuclear waste. And it had to do with what we do with the nuclear waste that's produced if we move to more nuclear energy options. Mm. Um, and it turns out the U.S. doesn't really have a plan for that. So that's one uh-huh. reason that nuclear energy is not taken off that well. So his book was just exploring sort of legal avenues to come up with a plan to deal with nuclear waste. Interesting. From a legal perspective, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And then, so did you have any interests, jobs, whatever, before you were in law school, like as a teenager or what kind of jobs did you do before that or interests did you have? Yeah, I kind of ran the gamut of sort of your typical teenager jobs. I worked at a grocery store. I worked as a receptionist. When I was in college, I worked as a barista at the campus coffee shop. Oh, nice. Um, (laughs) So kind of a range of your typical starting out jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So, and some of these questions might sound weird as we go along, but don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm sure as an attorney, you probably know that. I ask sometimes some kind of strange questions. Okay. <laughs> but our main topic today was to learn about charitable remainder trusts and charitable lead trusts and kind of what the difference is and how might that help an investor? Because I've had a couple of people tell me that those actually could be vehicles to like sell your property and instead of exchanging into another property, maybe you want to be generous and create a trust to, to have an ongoing impact instead of just another apartment building. So I kind of wanted to hear a little bit about that and then whatever else we can cover in the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure that you and your clients are very familiar with all of the various taxes that are associated with owning real estate, having income producing real estate and selling real estate. So there are a lot of charitable options that you can do to lessen those taxes. Obviously, there would just be the standard donating a real estate asset to charity and getting that income tax deduction and not having to pay capital gains. That's the easy Mm -hmm. one. So that would be just donating the building straight away to the charity. Yeah. Like I did it over to XYZ Church or whatever. Exactly. Okay. So you don't have any control over it anymore. You're not getting any income for it anymore, but you get those tax deductions. If you're in that situation, it's better to donate the real estate itself rather than selling it and donating the money because the charity is not going to have to pay those taxes. So they're going to get more. So they're going to prefer that. But if you do want to retain some control or you want to retain some income from those assets, or even if you want to be able to ultimately leave that asset to your beneficiaries, but give the charity something, you can use trust to do that. You mentioned charitable lead trusts and charitable remainder trusts. Those are going to be the two main options. And they're sort of mirror images of each other. So a charitable lead trust is you're giving the lead interest to the charity. So you'll choose an asset, you'll put it in the trust, and then the charity will get annual distributions from the trust based on a percentage of the trust's value. And that will be set for a term of years. And then when that term of years expires, the asset will go to your beneficiaries. So those trusts are set up as what we call grantor trusts, which means the trust income flows through to the person who sets it up, the donor in this case. And then the donor gets to take an income tax deduction on the money that actually went to the charity. 
that asset's also removed from your estate. So if you are a larger estate that might have to deal with estate taxes or gift taxes, it's getting that asset out. So your heirs aren't going to have to deal with estate taxes on that asset. Hmm. So that's the charitable lead trust. And then the charitable remainder trust is kind of the opposite of that. So you would put an asset in a trust and then you would actually take payments annually or quarterly or however you set it up for a span of time, which might be based on your lifetime or your spouse's lifetime or just a period of years. And then at the end of the term of the trust, the asset goes to charity. So you're going to get an income tax write-off at the beginning for the value of the charity's remainder interest. Mm -hmm. And same as the charitable lead trust, it's getting that asset out of your estate. So it's not going to have estate taxes either. Mm. Okay. So if I heard you right, so the charitable lead trust, I'm keeping the property, but I'm letting the cash flow go to the charity. Is that right? The property would be owned by the trust, but ultimately okay. left to your beneficiaries. Okay. So, so I'm charity, not giving up the property. Right, right. Okay. So the charity will have basically this guaranteed cash flow. So they like that. And then good for you because you get to leave it to your beneficiary and you still get that income tax write off. Mm-hmm. So what happens when I pass away? Do they get the cash flow back or does the charity always get that cash flow? Well, after you pass away, the checks to the charity or what, what have you stop and then the property passes outright to your beneficiaries. Okay. So my heirs would not have to keep giving some of the cash flow, that guaranteed cash flow to the charity. That ends when I die. Right. Oh. There's a term limit. And it might not be based on your life. It might just be, I'm going to set this up for 15 years and then it's going to oh. go to my heirs. Yeah. Okay. So if I wanted to do something like that for five years or two years, it could be as short as that, or is there a minimum time I have to do that? It's probably going to need to be longer just because the costs of setting it up, you're going to want to get enough deductions to make it worth it. For some trusts, well, for charitable remainder trusts, they actually max out at 20 years. Um, okay. Charitable lead trusts are a little bit more flexible. But I, I would say it's going to be a, a longer period of time just because you're going to need to have enough time for those deductions to make the cost worth it. Oh, okay. Okay. So that makes sense. Sometimes it helps to give an example. So let's say I have an apartment building and it generates, let's say it's worth $2 million and it generates, I don't know, like 6000 per month. I would put this $2 million apartment building into this trust. Mm-hmm. And so I'm taking this cash flow and I'm sending it to one or two or more charities for a certain amount of time. And then, so if I do it for 10 years, I might not have passed away. So I might still be alive and get it back. You probably would leave it to your beneficiaries at that point because you want it to stay out of your estate. Oh, okay. Um, If estate tax isn't one of your issues, I suppose you could have it revert to you. But typically the way we're setting this up, it's going to pass to a beneficiary. Okay. So selling the property and giving the amount of the capital gain to the charity instead of paying the capital gain or something like that. Is that possible? Because I'm hearing that it's going in a trust. Yeah. If you sell the property, as far as I'm aware, you have to pay that tax. There are options where you can, for example, sell a partial interest to a charity. You can do what's called a bargain sale where you're selling to a charity for less than fair market value. And then you get some write off of the taxes. But I don't think there's a way for you to sell the property and not pay any capital gains tax. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So we got to figure, I'm going to have to go back to those people and ask them how they did that. Okay. So I think we, I think we skipped ahead though. Could you explain to people the difference between a revocable trust and an irrevocable trust and how these things fit in here? Because I think 
people don't realize that there's consequences to one and the other, right? So sure, sure. So revocable trust means you can revoke it, you can change it, you can amend it. So that's going to be your standard living trust, estate planning trust. I think those are the terms that most states use. So those are usually used for probate avoidance. So those aren't going to have asset protection benefits. They're not going to have any tax benefits. All the tax is going to be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But if you keep your assets in a revocable living trust, your family isn't going to have to go through probate. Mm-hmm. So that's for a revocable trust. An irrevocable trust, as it sounds like, means you cannot revoke it, you cannot change it, and it is a separate legal entity from you. So the tax might still flow through to you depending on how we set it up, but it is its own legal owner. Nobody owns an irrevocable trust, just like nobody owns me or you. So they are often used to remove assets from estates for estate tax purposes. And they're also used for asset protection purposes because if you get sued and you get a judgment against you, somebody can't take an asset that you don't own. So if it's owned by an irrevocable trust, it's not owned by you. And I say irrevocable trust can't be revoked or changed. We actually are able to build in quite a bit of flexibility so that you can adjust things like trustees and beneficiaries. But you typically, it would be hard to revoke the whole trust and take everything back. Mm-hmm. So is the charitable lead or remainder trust, are those guys irrevocable or are they? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Charitable trusts are going to be irrevocable. There's a ton of IRS regulations related to these trusts which I couldn't possibly go into right. uh, in detail, but being an irrevocable trust is a requirement for these. Right. Okay. Okay. So once you made the decision to give building one to this charity, you really can't take it back. Right. Now, right. could you change which charity or are you pretty much decided when you set it up, it's decided and you can't say, oh, I don't want this church to get that building I want save the cats to get the building. Right. Yeah. We can build in the flexibility to change the charitable beneficiaries. As long as it's an approved charity of 501c3, we're typically able to change those out. Okay. So I won't go start save the cats just yet. (laughs) Okay. Okay, great. So in the charitable remainder trust, then how did that work again? The remainder trust, how does that one work again? Right. So you will put an asset into the trust and then you will retain an income stream from that trust. Oh. And I'll say you, the donor, it doesn't have to be the donor. The donor could decide that the income stream is going to go to a child, to a sister, to anybody they want to. Mm-hmm. But you'll retain an income stream. It might be for a lifetime or it might be a term of years, just like the lead trust. And then at the end of the term of the trust, the charity gets whatever is left over. And there's different kinds of charitable remainder trusts. The two... Oh, okay. Two main ones are a charitable remainder annuity trust, and that's going to be, you set up the trust, you put a certain asset in it, you calculate what the annual fee to you is going to be. That's going to be a fixed payment. It's never going to change. And then you move forward like that. More popular is the charitable remainder unit trust. That is a trust where instead of a fixed payment, you're receiving a percentage every year. And since it's based on a percentage rather than a figure, you can actually add more assets to the trust throughout your lifetime. And that's definitely more popular because it's more flexible within the realm of charitable remainder unit trust. There's even more flexibility we can build in about not distributing any payments until the asset actually produces a certain amount of income, delaying payments when income is low. And people just like them because the payments will 
change as the market changes. So it can payments can keep up with inflation. If the market's doing really well, they'll get more out of the trust. Um, uh-huh. So we use a lot with real estate investors because they're so flexible. Yeah. So I was just thinking like, if I put in this trust that I get 5000 a month in income and then there's repairs on the building and there's only 4000 am I breaking the rules or is there flexibility to give you whatever it is that the income producing property produces? And then also, if it's more and more income, who gets that income, right? Right, right. So that's going to be determined under several different laws. For example, California has a Uniform Income and Principal Act. And so the accountings for trusts are actually different than like accounting for income tax. Oh. So first you have to determine what the trust income actually is. And then depending on what the payment is, it might be 100% covered by income or it might be a situation where you have to invade principal or you might have one of these more flexible trusts where you can say, well, there wasn't a lot of income this year, so we're not going to make a big payment and we'll make it up later. Mm-hmm. So that's the benefit of being the unit trust. You can make up payments later and it's going to kind of fluctuate with the market and be able to keep up with the... Interesting. So which of those two trusts is more popular? Which do you see used more than the other? We definitely see more unit trusts, the ones where it's a percentage rather than a fixed payment, because people want the flexibility to add more assets. They want the flexibility to determine that they're going to put off a payment because it's a bad year or they don't need the income and then make it up in a year where they want to make a big purchase or something like that. The annuity trusts, It's kind of a complicated calculation up front as to the amount of the payment. And then they can actually fail. Like you mentioned, if there's not enough money to pay and you end up using up all of the assets in the trust, they can fail because it's an IRS regulation. that There has to be at least 10% of the value of the asset left for the charity. So if you are taking too much out of your annuity trust and the market's really bad or whatever the reason is, those trusts can fail. So the unit trust is certainly more flexible and therefore more popular. Uh huh. So if you donate the building, are you writing off? And if it's a CPA question, it's okay. But, but are, is the idea that you're writing off the value of the building like in one uh, year? Or do you have to spread it over years? Or Yeah, so it depends on if it's a lead trust or a remainder trust. So for a remainder trust, you are writing off the charity's remainder interest. So it, it's going to be a calculation with your CPA about what is the interest of your annual payments versus what is the interest of what's expected to be left for the charity. Um, And obviously there is a cap on how much a person can write off. So you can carry forward those deductions if you need to. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a lead trust, it's the opposite. It's, It's what's the value of the charity's lead payments. You can write those off, but those are written off annually. As I mentioned, the income Mm -hmm. goes to you and then you write off what the charity actually receives. Uh Uh-huh. That's a pretty cool idea, though. I just wonder, why wouldn't you just take the cash flow from your building and donate it? Like, why would I set up the trust, the lead trust, if I could just take the cash flow and donate it? Right. I think the the benefit is getting that building out of your estate. So you're not going to worry about estate taxes. You might have to do a gift tax return or something, but Mm -hmm. most likely you're not going to have to today because the exemption is so high. And then because it's owned by the trust, particularly with a remainder trust, there's no capital gains in the end because the charity has the property and they don't pay capital gains. Right. Even with a lead trust, you can put that real estate asset in the trust and then the trustee can sell the asset while it's in the trust, convert it to some other kind of income producing asset. 
And then same thing, no no capital gains tax there. Oh, that we might have just hit on why that gentleman thought he would avoid capital gains in selling his property. He was putting it in the trust and then having the trustee sell it. Yeah, because he was very excited. That's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it would have to be a a charitable trust, but that is how you avoid the capital gains. Right. Interesting. So we have a lot of clients, a lot of people listening that they have a lot of property and they want to pass it on to their kids, but they don't want them to sell everything. Is there one of these trusts that would allow someone to set up some rules that you can't sell it all at once or... You know, like a couple of families I work with, they have built up this huge amount of real estate. They worked hard for it. And I don't know why they're so worried because I'll be gone, but they're very worried that the kids will just like sell all the properties or mismanage them. And so is there one of your fancy trusts here that would allow these people to ensure that the cash flow continues, that the properties don't get sold, that they maintain or keep the integrity, especially when they've inherited property, right? Some of these properties get handed down two, three generations. Is there something that would fit something like that? Yeah, definitely. Actually, really any kind of trust is going to be great for that. So you set up a revocable living trust and you choose your successor trustee, somebody that you trust will uphold your values and your wishes. When you pass away, your revocable living trust then becomes irrevocable. So you can put provisions in there. I want to leave this property to my kids, but I don't want it sold. I want them to benefit from the cash flow that I've built up. So then your trustee ends up holding that property, managing that property, ensuring the kids get the cash flow and following your wishes. I mean, a trust is a contract, so they would be contractually obliged to follow your direction not to sell that property. Mm. So you can set up those provisions in a standard living trust. And then any of our irrevocable trusts are going to have beneficiary designations the same way the living trust does. So you could put in provisions in some of our fancy trusts are to get assets out of your estate. So they're going to transfer assets to your kids, but you can still put in those provisions. I don't want this property sold. I want it held in the cash flow distributed until whatever date you choose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I guess you could also mandate like the property management company. And if they do sell it, you could say only use this realtor because they know the history of the property or whatever, that kind of thing. Yeah, you could put those directions in. We put in contingencies, like use this person as long as they're still practicing or we try to plan for every contingency, but you can put in as many directions as you want to. Uh-huh. Cool. Okay. So Sarah has a question. It says, does this work when selling a house and the value over original price improvements a percentage would be paid to capital gains. Can it be just the amount, not a building or property? Sarah, I'm going to unmute you so you can ask. There we go. Sarah, you're now, we can hear you. I'm just curious. So I'm going to be selling my house soon. So I know you get a $250,000 deduction if you're single off the value. So it'll be over the way over the value I paid less improvement. So I just have this, so I'll have, I'll have to pay a capital gains tax on the amount over after that deduction. So I'm just wondering for a trust, if you can set this up, can it be an amount of money or does it have to be property or a house? That just be that to avoid capital gains impact on the amount that I'm in excess. Right. I think I understand your question. And the answer is that you'd have to put the whole house into a trust before selling it in order Uh, to take advantage of this. Partial interests, you typically can't use a charitable trust for it. It needs to be a person's entire interest. 
Okay. And it would have to be prior to the sale. It couldn't be cash after the sale. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be cash after. Okay, great. Because I have a living trust and I have that all set up. So that's perfect. But I just I just was trying to figure out how to avoid paying the capital gain. So mm-hmm. Donated to charity, that would be good. So, but anyway. Yeah. So Sarah, it also sounds like probably you need to talk to a CPA. You know, it's always better to think about your strategy before you do something, right? So probably we need to talk to a CPA who could think of some different ways that you could shelter or different ways that you could maybe minimize that capital gain. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. So part of the trusts that I see on your list are very interesting, but I think something that might be that's along these lines is the qualified personal residence trust. You want to kind of tell us what that one is and how that, that enters into the planning, estate planning that people could do. Sure. So a qualified personal residence trust is, as I mentioned, it's one of these trusts that we use when there is a very large estate that may be subject to the estate tax. And one of the big assets is the personal residence of the grantor. Mm-hmm. So you set up this trust, transfer your property to the trust, and still retain the right to live in it. And after the period of years of the trust, which is based on life expectancy and other calculations, the trust is transferred to your beneficiaries. So it's out of your estate. It will not be counted as one of your assets to take estate taxes from. And it's a transfer to your beneficiaries. Okay. So I'm putting my house in a trust and I'm assuming it's a irrevocable trust, right? Right. Okay. So I'm giving up the control, I guess. And so I get to keep living there, I, I assume, right? Exactly, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, are you kicking me out too? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's the benefit of this. You're getting it out of your estate, but you're still retaining the right to live in it. Okay, good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> so when I pass away, what happens to the house? It goes to your beneficiaries. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So most likely your children, your your family members, whoever you've designated. And I should probably step back and mention I keep talking about the estate tax. The exemption right now per person is 11.4 million. Mm-hmm. So it's very high. There are very few people that need to worry about the estate tax right now. That is a law scheduled to sunset on December 31st, 2025, at which point the estate tax is scheduled to go back down to 5 million per person. That is indexed for inflation. So it's actually by that time going to be closer to six or maybe even over six, but it's going to be cut in half. So people that don't need to worry about estate tax right now assuming that they're still alive in six more years, many of them are going to need to worry about estate taxes. Right. So this is still valuable information for... Right. Even if your estate is smaller, once your estate does hit that 5 million mark, you're going to want to start thinking about these planning vehicles. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm trying to understand. So this qualified personal residence trust, so I'm putting it in a trust, but it sounds like nothing bad happens and I'm not really giving up any rights. So I guess you probably can't finance the house, right? You probably can't refinance it or I'd have to find a special yeah, yeah. lender who's okay with the fact that, exactly. you, you know, to find a, a lender who's familiar with these vehicles, which some of them are, it's probably right. not going to be a big bank, but there are smaller institutions that are very familiar with complex estate planning. I guess it's a downside. After the term of the trust expires, that trust is not in your ownership and control anymore. So say that you're the beneficiaries or your children, which it often is, your uh-huh. children are the owners of that house. So you have to make sure that you trust them. You know they're not going to kick you out. So I guess that's the downside. You're giving up that control of that asset, which you have to do to remove it from your estate. Right. 
So I might still be alive. The term of the, they call them cuperts, I guess. Cuperts. Okay. So the term is over. I'm still alive. I still want to live in the house, but now I don't have control. Like they could sell it from under me right now. They could sell it. Yeah. And typically to keep it out of your estate, the IRS would want to see rent payments. So because you're not and you're living there after the rent to your children. So that's the downside. Yeah. The estate tax, if you are subject to estate tax, it's 40%. So people are willing to do these kind of crazy things to avoid that 40% tax. It's it's Uh just such a super high amount. But really, it's your estate. It's your heirs that you're protecting because you'll be gone. What do you care? (laughs) Tax could be 90% if you're dead. (laughs) Oh, well, okay. And so what's the difference between that and a dynasty trust? I'd heard dynasty trust. I kind of thought that was the same. So what's the difference there? So a dynasty trust is typically going to be set up as part of your living trust. It can be set up in any of these irrevocable trusts, but it can be set up in your living trust. And it's a way for wealth to pass down through multiple generations and only be taxed once at the estate tax level. So essentially you're going to be leaving assets to your children, but you put certain restrictions on their access to principal. You give them income rights, but you restrict their access to principal so that asset doesn't technically enter their estate. So then when they pass away, there's not an estate tax. And then the terms of the trust will say it basically keeps passing through generations this way. Oh, okay. Um, Really powerful tools because those assets can keep growing and growing and all of that growth is shielded from estate taxes after the first time. Mm-hmm. So for estates that are close to the estate tax mark or, or may, may be subject to it in the future, mm-hmm. um, it's a really good idea. You do have to be okay with the idea that your children may not have full access to assets, mm-hmm. um, but we're able to build in quite a few safeguards that they can get into that principle if they need to. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So probably like the Getty family and people like that use this kind of thing where you hear their trust babies. So I guess that's what it is, is they're getting the income, but they don't really know where the investments are. They they don't have anything to do with that, right? Exactly. Okay. And then, so another one that a couple of people have asked me about is this family limited partnership trust. So how does that one function? How does that work for people? Right. So it's actually, it's not a trust. It's just a partnership and the partners are family members. The way that that works, again, this is related to estate taxes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have a family, it might be a business. It might just be real estate, whatever your family assets are. You have multiple family members that are partners in that. And then the elder generation is going to have a minority interest And when the IRS values estates, they give a discount to minority interests because those interests aren't marketable, because they're not controlling interests. The IRS says these aren't worth as much. So an elder person might have 10% of the family partnership, and maybe that's worth a million dollars. But the IRS actually, for estate tax purposes, might discount that 30% because it's not a controlling interest and there's no market for it. So that is a really good tool. If you do have an estate tax problem, we used to see them a lot. Towards the end of the Obama years, the IRS was actually talking about doing away with discounts on family limited partnerships. But when President Trump came in, he, he pulled that off the table. So they're still mm-hmm. a viable planning tool. At this point, 
people are planning more for income taxes than estate taxes. And so they don't want those discounts because they want to get the full step up in basis. But for people who are still worried about estate taxes, those discounts are very significant. Uh huh. Wow. Okay. And so it's just for estate planning. I mean, there's no other reason to do this. I mean, a partnership has other benefits from like a business planning perspective and asset protection perspective. So there are other benefits. You can have restrictions in operating agreements and buy-sell restrictions so that family members, they can't sell their interests to third parties. They can't essentially dilute the family assets uh, Mm -hmm. without permission. So those are other side benefits to it as well. A good thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. So from a asset protection point of view, what would you say are the tools that you see your office using most often for, especially the real estate investors to protect what we've built? What would you say are the tools that we should be aware of as far as yeah, asset protection? Yeah. So asset protection spans a really wide range of tools and some of them people will be very familiar with. I mean, just getting insurance is, is asset protection. I'm sure all of your listeners and your clients are familiar with LLCs. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going to be sort of the base thing that we use with um, anybody who has uh, real estate that that they're renting out should use an LLC. The benefit of the LLC is that it separates that business asset from your personal asset. Mm -hmm. So if you have a tenant that gets injured or, or some sort of liability within that property, creditors are limited to the assets in that LLC. So it separates, it makes sure that your personal assets aren't at risk with these business assets. So that's going to be the very base level of asset protection. The next step up is going to be using irrevocable trusts. And those come in domestic forms and the international trusts. We do trusts in the Cook Islands, in Nevis, in Isle of Man. Those are going to be for obviously people with bigger estates. But what that does, as we talked about earlier, an irrevocable trust is a separate legal owner. So it takes assets out of your ownership and puts them with another owner. So you're basically creating two different pots and making sure that you have something that's safe, even if you do have that big lawsuit, uh, that big creditor, whatever happens. Mm. What's your thoughts on whether each property should have its own LLC? Can you combine a couple of properties? Like you hear this argument quite a bit, right? How many LLCs do you need and how many are too many and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And I think the reason it's an argument is because there's not an easy answer. Just from being a conservative lawyer type, my ideal world is that you all have all of your assets separated into different LLCs. Uh Uh, We have so many investors that own 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 properties that that's just not realistic. And there's certainly, you can't overlook the benefits of being streamlined. Mm. So I think as much as you can stand to divide things up into different pots, you should. But I understand that it's just, it's not feasible to just have an LLC for every different asset. Right. And I think there are ways to group things so that you have a low liability asset with higher assets that are worth more so that you're kind of dividing it up so that if one of these LLCs got hit, it wouldn't totally wipe out everything. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that that's good. And so what kind of irrevocable trust would enter into the asset protection? So we do a lot of trust based out of Nevada. There are, I believe we're up to 18 states now that allow asset protection trusts. And an asset oh. protection trust is just a trust that you settle and you can also be the beneficiary of. 
that wasn't possible in the United States until the mid-90s. Oh, wow. Um, in the mid-90s, the United States signed the Hague Convention on Trusts, which meant that U.S. citizens could enter into trusts under another country's laws, and the U.S. would respect those laws. Huh. And other countries, like the Cook Islands, have laws that say you can settle a trust and be the beneficiary of the trust, and you have asset protection. So that became big in the mid-90s, and then some states looked at that and said, we need to take advantage of that. We're going to pass a similar law. So Alaska was the first state. Now, like I said, we're up to about 18. Some of those laws aren't, they don't really have teeth. They'll allow creditors to pierce the trust for various reasons, but mm. uh, Nevada is the best one because they really don't let any creditors in. And like I said, it kind of depends on both the settler's tolerance for risk and the size of their estate. We see people, when people get into the 4 or $5 million net worth, they start to want to look offshore because they don't want to start over. And mm. the benefit of being offshore is that you're removing U.S. court jurisdiction. So if you have a Nevada trust, you're still dealing with U.S. courts. There's full faith and credit in the United States. So you'd kind of be dealing with a battle between states if you're outside of Nevada, obviously. And going offshore just means you're removing that U.S. court jurisdiction. But for uh, states that haven't reached that level yet or somebody might just have a higher tolerance for risk, the Nevada option is, is a great alternative. Mm. And some people think the Delaware trust is more important. So why, why is that? Do they have pretty good protections too or... Delaware, we don't do a lot of trust work in Delaware. It's a very old jurisdiction. So we actually use a lot of trustees in Delaware because they have a ton of experience. They have deep pockets. They're trustworthy, but they don't necessarily cost as much as like a bank. Uh Um, And they also have great corporate laws and uh, courts that only deal with corporations. So we do see corporate work there. We don't do trust work there. Off the top of my head, I don't know if they have an asset protection law. If they do, it's not one of the top ones. So it's not a jurisdiction that we work in. Uh-huh. That's interesting. So if we go offshore, what does that mean exactly? And where is Cook Island? Where is Cook Island? <laughs> Cook Island. <laughs> I'm like, am I going there? Am I- <laughs> you don't have to go there. I would recommend it. I would like to go there. <laughs> um, it's off the coast of New Zealand. And I'm told oh. that it's beautiful. I've never been there myself, but it's a tropical island. It was one of the first jurisdictions to set up these asset protection laws. Many of the other jurisdictions based their laws off of the Cook Islands. So Mm -hmm. that is one of our most common ones. So it's going to be your trust that's based in the Cook Islands. You'll have a Cook Islands trustee. The trust would be governed. If there was a lawsuit, the trust would have to go through Cook Islands courts. And those courts are very familiar with asset protection, the Cook Islands likes to be a hub for asset protection. So courts there want to protect that. And they have a short statute of limitations. It's a two-year statute of limitations before claims are barred for any reason. So Um, we typically set these trusts up. So they are what we call dormant trusts. So you're not actually going to have your money over in the Cook Islands. The trust is going to own a company. And usually it's a domestic company. It might be a Wyoming company, a Nevada company. And then the settler, you, the person who sets up the trust, will manage that company. So all of the money, the investments and things will be at the LLC level controlled by you. And then the only thing that that trustee is controlling is they own the LLC interest, but they don't actually have to do, do anything. anything. Have that money. 
So you're not using a bank checking account there. Like you're not doing all your business through a bank there. It's just like a holding company. Okay. Right. We find for U.S. citizens, there's rarely a good reason to have your money offshore unless you're actually doing business offshore, then then it makes sense. But uh-huh. if you're doing business in the U.S., you can't shield yourself from taxes. There's no reason to have your money outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So if someone sued me and I'm a Cook Island corporation, they have to go there to sue? They have to do all the paperwork exactly. through that court system? I see. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. So that's the international trust you were talking about. Right. Okay. Huh. And you just keep doing business as if you're, everything's normal. Right, right. It's just all your assets are owned by this trust that's in another country. We wouldn't transfer all your assets over. A lot of the planning that we do has to do with appearances, how you look, setting up roadblocks to, for mm. someone to sue you. So if yeah. someone wants to sue you, Athena, and they look at you and they see Athena owns a house and she has a bank account, and that's it. That's kind of a regular thing. If they look at you and they see Athena doesn't own anything, but we know that she's a successful person with a business, then they're going to go digging. Mm. And what we want is for them to never discover this Cook Islands Trust. You're not the owner of it. You're just Mm -hmm. a beneficiary. So for example, if you were in a deposition and somebody asked if you owned some account and that's owned by your Cook Islands Trust, you'd say no under penalty of perjury. I would say 80% of the time when one of our clients gets sued, the other side never even knows that they have an asset protection trust, which is the way this is designed to work. Mm. Um, And it's we set it up so you look like you own a normal amount of assets, but no more. For some reason, somebody does discover that trust and tries to get the money back. That's when the Cook Islands trustee is going to say, great, if you have a valid claim, we'll pay it, but you have to come over here to the Cook Islands and we have to get a court order from the Cook Islands. Uh-huh. Which is probably not easy, I would think. No. And that's uh, an expensive trip. That's an expensive trip for an attorney to go chasing. Exactly. Right. And actually, the U.S. is one of the most creditor-friendly nations. It might be the most creditor-friendly. If you want to sue someone in the Cook Islands, not only do you have to go hire Cook Islands attorneys, you also have to post a bond for the amount that you're claiming. In the U.S., you can sue anybody for anything, and there's no repercussion if you're doing it out of malice. Yeah. In other countries, it's not like that. In the Cook Islands, you have to put up defense fees if you want to bring a lawsuit. Uh-huh. So not to mention the legal fees. You're also talking about travel fees. You're talking about bond fees. So you, right. you really have to go through a lot of hoops to sue someone in the Cook Islands. Yeah, so it would have to be a big money lawsuit for an attorney to even bother doing all that, I would think. Exactly. If right. they even find out about it, as you're exactly. saying, right? Yeah. Wow, that's pretty pretty interesting. So I'm just curious about this one thing. And again, guys, if you have questions, feel free to ask. So what is this intentionally defective grantor trust? That doesn't sound good. <laughs> why is it defective and why would we want this? <laughs> so it's called a defective trust because you're transferring assets to a beneficiary, but you're retaining the grantor status of the trust so that income tax flows to you. So we often see that in our office, we call them children's trusts because it's a trust structured to pass assets to your children, get them out of your estate, but you still pay the income tax on them. So if you have young children or children who just couldn't pay income taxes on it, you retain those income taxes, but it's outside of your estate. So you can have any kind of asset in there. It's for estate tax purposes. There's no income tax 
the income tax would still flow to you. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So what would your advice be to like a real estate investor who's maybe starting off? And then what would your advice be to someone who's built a lot of assets and, but has never formally done any kind of trust, right? So many of my clients don't even have their living trust set up. So what's your advice to both groups, the beginner investor and then kind of the more seasoned investor? Yeah. Well, if they're watching this, they're doing a great start because just getting the information that you need as your estate builds is important. It's never too early to set up a living revocable trust. That is for if you're incapacitated or you pass away, what happens to your assets so your family doesn't have to go to court. Particularly if you have minor children, those documents are going to say what you want to happen to your minor children, who you want to be their guardian. So those are super important. Everybody needs those base documents. It doesn't matter how big your estate is. As far as beyond those basic documents, if you're just starting out, learning this information is a great start. LLCs are always a good idea, as I mentioned. Just separating your business assets from your personal assets is really important. Having the appropriate amount of insurance, all of those are low-cost ways to start your asset protection. If you are a larger estate or you have more assets, you should start thinking about using more complex planning like irrevocable trust to sort of shield some of your assets away, particularly when you have uh, real estate that's being rented to tenants. That's high liability. Some of your clients might have other day jobs that are high liability. We work with a lot of doctors, um, mm-hmm. pilots, things like that, where they have that separate liability. So now you have liability in two different realms. So the important thing is that for asset protection planning, it needs to be done when your legal seas are calm. If you already have a big lawsuit against you, there might be a couple of things we can do to cherry pick what assets are available. But once a lawsuit comes, we can't, we're not going to help you hide assets. We're not going to help you commit right. fraud or anything like that. So getting started when your legal seas are calm is absolutely... I like that. Fun. Legal seas are calm. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Good, good. Well, thank you. So... If someone wanted to contact you to get some advice or get their plan done or ask a question, what's the best way for them to contact you? You can email me. My email is Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T at day-law.com. Our law firm is Day & Associates. Website's day-law.com. So you can find our phone number, things on there, and I'm happy to talk. We do free consultations. So anyone can contact me anytime. Okay, great. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I think we learned a lot today. Maybe <laughs> yeah, it's kind those of charitable story. trusts. I wanted to know about those charitable <laughs> trusts. Yeah, it's definitely complex and it's overwhelming. So I'm happy yeah. to answer follow-up or clarification questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for joining us here at Cashflow Academy. I appreciate great. it so much. Nice thank you. Okay, Bye. thank you. Bye-bye. Is investment something that's always been on your mind, but you don't quite know how to get started on that journey? We are here to set you on the right course. Welcome to My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We are all about getting out of the rat race through creating positive passive income through real estate investing. Here you'll hear from regular people just like you and the professionals who support us towards greater wealth. Learn before you earn. Move from analysis to action and find the right path to attaining the success that you've always dreamed of for yourself.